Welcome to the What's Up with Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator host, and welcome to season two from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions. Why cultural institutions? Indigenous land or territorial acknowledgements pertain to all places, especially to libraries, archives, museums, and universities, because it is their ethical obligation as educational institutions to create truthful and factual representations. These acknowledgements have an educational function that makes them universally applicable, regardless of an institution's particular focus. They are about respecting and recognizing Indigenous peoples and their relationships to land through the protocols of naming people, elders, ancestors, and the times of past to future. Acknowledgement statements confront institutional legacies as agents of colonialism. Cultural institutions have utilized deeply colonial methods to develop mainstream representations of the other as territory, in addition to perpetuating and reinforcing destructive colonial narratives. Further, because of the authority of cultural institutions, these narratives have been accepted as truth, informing policies that negatively affect Indigenous peoples. The ongoing effects of settler colonialism need to be addressed. Again, that is from the Guide to Indigenous Land and Territorial Acknowledgements for Cultural Institutions. You can find a link to the guide on our website. The What's Up with Docs podcast is recorded on the unceded territory of the Tongva and the Chumash. Two episodes ago, I told you that Ronell Schubert, our producer, was born on the unceded territory of the Kickapoo, known now as Nashville, Illinois. There are three major Kickapoo communities in the United States. The Kickapoo Indian Reservation of Texas is located on the Rio Grande on the U.S.-Mexico border in western Magra County, just south of the city of Eagle Pass, and is part of the community of Rosita South. The 2000 census calculated a population of 420 members. The tribe uses revenue from its gaming and business operations to provide housing, education, and social services to its members. The members are related ethnically to the Fox, the Sulk, and the Shawnee tribes. Many tribal members speak English, Spanish, and the Kickapoo language, which is a Fox language and part of the Algonquin language family. They also use Kickapoo whistled speech. In this episode, I speak with a writer, photographer, educator, filmmaker, and proud mom, April Dobbins. During our conversation, we chat about her many, many, many artistic endeavors and the joys and challenges of making her first feature documentary, Alabama Land. Because we are so often defined by the situations in which we say yes, this week's song is Fela Kuti's No Agreement, which challenges us all to find power in small and large acts of resistance. Remember, no is a complete sentence. Here is our conversation, which was recorded in February, 2021. I think we're gonna have a really robust conversation because you are into it all. Um, but I always like to start off with um, how we met and I can't actually remember, but you said that you could. So like, can you tell that story? I do. I think initially I thought that the first time we met was at uh, Getting Real but that's not correct. Um, I think the first time we met was actually at a firelight retreat. In New Orleans, because you were part of the documentary lab there. That's right, yeah. yeah and I, I, and was. I was mentoring the impact producers. Yeah, okay, that was the first time we met. Yeah, I think I was going back through some photos and I'm like, oh wait, you were in, because I think you were in the impact producer photo. Yeah, I, th I think I photobombed that. But <laughs> yes, epic photo. Yes, 
That was the one we were eating dinner at that restaurant, but we were all like posing in that room with like the beautiful red couch. Yes. And the wallpaper. <laughs> the the wallpaper. wallpaper. Yes. Uh, you're a mother. So how old is your daughter? My daughter is going to be 17 um, in March. Wait, you have a grown ass child. <laughs> I, know. I, know. I don't know how it happens. I don't know. Right? How it is she like a senior in high school? Yeah. Okay. She's a junior this year and she actually goes to art school. So she's an artist. Oh, just like her mama. Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, what is her like favorite medium so far? It's funny because she started out in photography. She was really young when I was first getting into photography stuff. I got her one of those toddler cameras so that while I was taking photos, she could take photos. And it was super interesting because after our days out shooting things, her perspective was from the toddler angle. And I thought it was so cool that we were taking pictures of the same things, but in different ways. But I think what happened is like kids go through that thing where they want to be exactly like you and then they want to be the opposite of you. She kind of chilled on the photography and moved more into drawing. So now she does a lot of drawing, painting, collage, that kind of thing. And at her school, like they have like sculpture classes. They do different things every semester because they want to teach them like all of the mediums. So that's her thing now. She she does less photography than she used to and more painting. Well, that's great. She has opportunity to like explore all these different um, things to really kind of see what she likes and what she doesn't like. She's kind of getting the city life that I always wanted. Like, you know, like I grew up in rural Alabama on a dirt road in the country. So there were no arts programs. And I was always sort of like a dr dreaming about going to the fame school and dreaming about what it would be like to have artist friends and dreaming about museums, like stupid stuff, right? Um, and so it's interesting, like I've given her sort of like all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And she sort of like played around in it a lot, but I do get a lot of, like a lot of parents of color, especially, are just she gonna do for real you know like what's the real job and like i'm living this artist's life you know and and my daughter is probably aspiring to do to do that yeah so you grew up in alabama like we're in alabama greensboro so i was born and raised in georgia and augusta so like we're both southern oh yeah yeah so you know i know you know i know <laughs> how long have you lived in miami because that's where you reside now. It's a this month, nine years. And did you come there from Alabama or did you live like, did you have some other places you lived in before? It's crazy because I made a big loop. Like I left Alabama when I was 18 to go to college in Iowa. I went to school in Iowa for four years and then I moved to Boston for two years. Hated it because they're like, no, it was just super segregated. It's one of the most segregated cities I think I've ever lived in. Went to Philadelphia for like a Dune Day weekend. And a Dune Day is like this big black street festival. I was there for the weekend. Questlove was like DJing on the corner, you know, at the street festival. And I was like, I'm going to get an apartment while I'm here. <laughs> Had an apartment that weekend. Went and got my stuff from Boston and moved to Philly. So I was in Philly for maybe like six and a half years. My daughter was born there. I had a really bad breakup, had to sort of like run home with my tail between my legs. I had vowed that I would never move back to Alabama and never live there again. Like I was never coming back. And I was like probably the saddest, lowest that I had ever been when I went back. I was a newly single parent and I never thought I would be that. But I have like all my family lives there. So it gave me a chance to sort of like reconnect with the land that we live on and sort of get to know like my grandfather and my my elders as an adult, like with me being an adult. And my daughter sort of got to form bonds with them. Like she still today, that's like her happy place. That's where she's most at home, which is interesting because I was trying to sort of like build a life for her outside of that, thinking never at home there. 
but she's most at home there, just the opposite of me in a really random way. So it was a blessing that, but for me, it almost killed me. Miami, I moved here. I applied for a job at the University of Miami as a writer. Moved here, not knowing anyone here, never having been here. Just got the job. Everything went really quickly. I moved, single mom, freaking out. And it just ended up working so well for me. It's, you know, like it's a weird, long story, right? Like it's one of those things where I think a lot of people who are into multiple things, like like I, I've always been a writer first, right? And then I've, I've been documenting my family things. And like, you know, as a teenager, I was a kid who wanted a camera for Christmas, you know, like the shoulder camcorder. I had one of those. And then I went to the college that I went to in Iowa is Grinnell College. And they didn't have a film program, but they had an AV lab. So I used to do little films and like edit them, nowhere to show them, nobody to see them. I got, had keys to the AV lab, which nobody else had. And at that time you could smoke inside. So <laughs> ashtray, you know, it was just, it was a different time, but I was making little documentaries, you know, cause I like documenting the things that were going on. Like I always knew that I wanted to be in film, but I thought I wanted to be an actress. I did a lot of acting. Like that's, I did a lot of stage stuff. And that was sort of like my home. It was one thing that I did that no one could question, make me question my talent. And part of that was like channeling characters. And part of that comes from being a good writer, right? But the documentary thing, just sort of like, I, I, I realized I was building these pieces of like, like I filmed all of our family reunions, like I filmed things at home and I, like I have tapes from college, you know, like I was always filming things. I just didn't know how it would all come together. And I was never really drawn to like, quote unquote, documentary. Like I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted the glitz and the glamour. I wanted to be a, like a superstar. And so the move back to Alabama was what started the documentary process. Like when I moved back to Alabama, it's like I was still a writer, but I was super depressed. Um, and being a single parent, like my daughter was three at the time, I think I couldn't, I'm the type of writer that needs silence. Like I need the focus, like I need no one to bother me. And I couldn't do that with her in the role that I was now in. And, and one of the, my things was like, I didn't want to resent her or I didn't want her to feel any sort of resentment interrupting my creative things. And so that's how I started doing photography. Cause I was just like, I need to tell stories and I have creative things. How do I do it? So I got a camera, I got her a camera. And then it was like storytelling that we could do together. That's beautiful. So the the documentary that I'm still working on, Alabama Land, started those photographs. And just, I would follow my granddad around on the farm and just sort of like document and take pictures and record his stories, like with a tape recorder, you know? Um, and that was just doing that for me because I needed it. But then people were like sort of at the photos, a lot of the photos were published like with literary journals, like some, a lot of them were like covers for literary journals and stuff. Um, I've always been really good about submitting my work to places. Like I will get rejections all day. It doesn't bother me. I just, I'm always looking for a home for whatever it is that I'm doing. So I was sending photos out everywhere from Alabama and a lot of literary journal, journals just started picking them up. So I was like, well, maybe there's something to this. Like I'm sort of doing this slow, it's almost like the slow food movie, but it's like slow photography. And I'm an insider in this place. Um, and it and it's like the black rural, which I think a lot of people weren't seeing at that time. So they like it just took off and people started sort of pushing me to do a documentary, but I didn't feel ready technically. Um, part of that is like, I'd always wanted to go to film school, but I couldn't afford it. Like I never could afford it. And that was something I always wanted. Like I was always looking at NYU. I always had the brochures, but it just, 
feasible for me. So um, moving to Miami sort of got me into that because I'm very strategic about all of the things, all the moves that I make. With Miami, I knew that they had tuition remission and I knew they had a decent MFA program. I got a job, I worked for maybe like a year, and then I started the MFA program part-time for free. When you were hired there, you were hired there to um, teach writing? No, I was actually a writer. Like, so I wrote, and I was like a writer in advancement. So I wrote like the letter, the president's letters, agreements for like million dollar gifts. You know, I wrote donor profiles, like all of that kind of stuff. But that work, actually, you know, that work was sort of, I was doing that work in Alabama because I worked at the University of Alabama before moving. It was an easy transition to make. And that work for me was very, you know, it's like being a ghostwriter. Like you never get any of the glory or credit. Like your name doesn't really go on things, but it teaches you to write in other people's voices, pivot to write for different audiences, right? Because sometimes there would be, you know, if you're trying to name a building or you're trying to get a building named and you're trying to get someone to fund that, who the donor is, you have to shift the ask. Like, what is that donor interested in? Like, what, how can you? And all of that toolbox, I didn't realize at the time, is what helped me with grant writing because I was used to doing that and having to pivot and explaining to people what the benefits would be, you know, eloquently. As a person who um, used to read a lot of grants and, and proposals, what advice would you give to like a newer filmmaker? I know it's like, like, oh, but, so much it, right? I know, but like, cause I know I sometimes do these workshops, like grant writing do's and don'ts. And some things are like, uh, some things are really basic, which a lot of people don't adhere to is like, make sure you follow the instructions. <laughs> the instructions <laughs> follow the instructions yes like if they want it formatted a certain way in a, in a certain font like you're asking them for money give them what they want you know it's interesting because now i've moved into teaching but there was a course that i designed because now at the university of miami i'm the director of prestigious awards and fellowships i basically advise students who are applying for like the Rhodes scholarship fulbright like competitive international awards I try to push them outside of their comfort zone but a lot of that is students are sort of like coming to things just thinking, I'm just going to sell it, right? I'm, I'm just going to sell it, blah, blah, blah. One of the things I tell them is I, the way that I apply for things, and I'm grown. I'm like, I'm grown, I'm old, but I, I actually print out the instructions and I keep them beside me, like keep them beside me as I'm typing my statement. And then I go back and look, like I read my statement, I go back and look, did I miss what is the font? Are the margins supposed to be something? And I always catch things, right? But I tell them that the instructions, they are the first test. It's just like your cover letter and resume. To me, that's the first test. If you're applying for something and your cover letter is messy and your resume has all these typos, you're not getting through the door, right? So say here with your grants, like it's your responsibility to go through this with a fine tooth comb. Yes. Giving the people what they're asking for. If they say submit it in a single PDF, don't send 16 word documents because that's not what they ask yes, for. Yes, yes. More is not more. Exactly. I mean, sometimes I would um, email people and say, hey, you missed like all these portions of the, like your, your, essentially your application is not complete because sometimes they would just leave all complete sections. And then they email back, well, what did I miss? And I would tell them, okay, print out your, what you sent and print out the instructions and do a side-by-side -side comparison. But I had to like really tell yeah. people that and like people don't want to do that. And, but also like you said, it's a test because if you're not going to be able to follow these basic instructions, 
then how is it going to be to work with you? Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing is like, I, I remember during my time, so I feel like I'm, I'm 43, right? So came up, coming up through elementary school, it, it, we would sometimes get worksheets where if you didn't read the instructions and just filled it out the way, if you went back and read the instructions, it's like you got an F because the instructions said do the opposite, right? And that was. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think now a lot of the, the things that I'm finding, what I love about my job now is I get to tell students on the pre-submission and look at this mess that you made, like, or, or, or I get to tell people who are applying, look at, like, if, if I was the person making the judgment, you wouldn't get this. And these are all the reasons why I see the lights go off. Like, oh my gosh, like I should have, you know, I should pay more attention to this. And, and particularly like with, I mean, it's the same thing with film grants. You're applying against some of the most competitive people in the country. You don't want to give them a reason to say, no, that's based on something because you didn't format something correctly. Or because you did it the night before. Like, yes. like I, I got this, I can do it. I've done it before. And they don't put the time into it. I'm like, that might work for you usually, but you're competing against the creme de la creme for a large pot of money. What did you major in when you were um, in college? In college, I started out as a theater major. Okay. Because you wanted to do the acting thing. Did all the plays. Um, and then I switched to English and I finished in English because halfway through being a theater major, one day after a huge production, like we had a great play, huge production, I was sitting at a very long table of actors and I like we'd had lunch for like an hour, but somewhere during that lunch, I looked down the table and everybody was performing, but nobody was listening. Like, dude, people are like gesticulating wildly and like all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, oh my gosh, if I do this, like this is going to be my life. Being with a bunch of people who don't listen. <laughs> they just, it's just like me, me, look at me, look at me, look at me, you know? People are trying to be sane. And I get it. Like that's the business of it. Like I don't even, I don't necessarily, like, fault them or blame them because I feel like it's set up that to work that way. Right. But I was just like, I don't want this. And then that and being typecast a lot, like realizing that I, I only had so much control, even at Grinnell, which was like this small sort of like, you know, um, they had all the wording right, right? Well, I went to um, Carleton College in um, Minnesota, small liberal white, liberal arts college. Yes, I feel you. I mean, greatest of intentions, right? I think I was doing an audition. We had to read something from, it was like Chekhov. I don't remember what it was. But in doing the audition, the line was, look at my hands, they're so lily white. Do I look like I've done a day of work in my life or something to that extent, right? And so on my stage, kind of like, yeah, okay. And then I went and sort of like sat behind, I sat a couple of rows behind the directors who were choosing the actors just to wait and listen. Mm -hmm. And there was another woman trying out, and I think she was trying out for Medusa because they were auditioning for a few plays. She came on stage and before she even said anything, they were just like, she's perfect. Look at her hair. It's so blonde. It's so curly. And I was just like, well, you know, if this is how this goes, is this what I want to be in? Mm. So that for me was the pivot to like being an English major and like moving back into writing because that's what I've always loved anyway. That's interesting you talk about that because um, with everything that happened last year and the the um, all the protests around um, George Floyd's murder, there were a lot of artists who practiced a variety of mediums who were you know speaking out about 
their treatment in you know usually predominantly white institutions. And there have been like several videos by theater folks who talked about that and the struggle of what it means to be a person of color trying to navigate these spaces. When you're working in the documentary space, have you found that to be different, similar? What has been your experience? I think I was agonizing before this because I'm like, how much do I really want to say? <laughs> Well, yeah, we're all about truth here, but it is something you don't feel comfortable. Oh, yeah, Ooh. I know. I mean, you mm. you you got a lot of grants, so you're okay. But mm. but how much, but how much but more money do you need? And do you want to make another movie? <laughs> I don't. You know. So here, so these are the things, right? Yes. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much work that the well-intentioned need to do. Yes. There's so much work for organizations to do, and again, kind of like the Grinnell thing, like they have all the wording right. But for me, like, just to be honest, because I've sort of decided in my mind, when I finish this movie, I'm done with doing movies this way, right? Like, so if I still do movies, I'm going to do them sort of like on the DL quietly. And if they come out and do things, that'll be great. But I'm not going to do it sort of like, this is my first feature, right? Right. Big fanfare. I've gotten a lot of grants. I have never felt more like... Like I've had a parole officer. Like I feel like I'm in debtor's prison, right? Like just sort of like the po- policing. For me, it's like, I'm like, okay, we, we said I have all these things, right? I have to work full time. I don't have that option. Like I'm a single parent. Like I need health insurance for both of us. Mm-hmm. I have a safety net. I don't come from wealth. I don't have family that can bail me out. There's a way that my regular life works that it has to work that way. And I think when I came into the documentary filmmaking, one of the mistakes that I made personally for myself but it was sort of unavoidable is I was doing all of the outward facing, like I need to raise funds. I need like this project needs to be on people's radars in the development phase. And you know, you have to do that to get money for development and then to get money for production and to shoot and all of that. But for me as a creative to have so many people involved that early was traumatic. So in regards to them interfering with the story that you want to tell that, the sort of like casting of a lot of doubt. I think the way that the documentary film world operates is a lot like the way corporate America operates and they don't want to admit that, except the language is very different. It's like liberal arts colleges. The language is so on point, but the black woman navigating that, it still felt like bill collectors were calling me. You know, every time my phone would ring or I would see like, or get an email, I would have a traumatic reaction, like stressful reaction, because I know on the other end of that, are people who doubt already. They, I mean, they doubt you already because you're a first-time filmmaker. The excuse that they use is, oh, well, you're a first-time filmmaker. But I think they use that first-time filmmaker status to pressure you unnecessarily because they know there's a power dynamic there. You don't know anything. They hold the first strings. They hold the power. And so there was a lot of like stress and tension in my life where I just, here, here's this project that's very dear to my heart that now, like even now when I look at the footage, I have, I feel like I have PTSD. Like I get, I don't have bad anxiety, but all of the feelings of the business of it sort of come rushing back. Right. And just the pressure. So to me, it's like when I first started making this film, I knew what it was. My family has lived on this land for hundreds of years. We're slaves on this land. My granddad very slowly and strategically built it out to be the 688 acres that it is that we own. The sleigh bell is still in the front yard. So to me, that was a slow build. And it's a very Southern story in the slow building of it. And documenting a farm over time 
for me, is more effective than dropping in and shooting something for a year, pasting it together and being like, here's your diverse Southern story that you're looking for that's hot right now. So when I first came to the film, I would say, this is a movie that I'm thinking I will shoot over five to seven years because I wanna keep coming back to this place and seeing how it changes and seeing like how it grows and seeing it the shift from doing more crops to just doing cattle. Like it's sort of like a slow burn. You're watching the transition. Yeah. And you're also attempting to put a story that has like a 400 plus year history. And so what I would get initially with that was, well, you can't tell people that your movie is going to take five to seven years because you won't get any money. So that's crazy because most people in the U.S. take that long. I mean, it takes that long to, to do a film. I mean, I would say on average five years in Europe, I think it's the turnaround is a little faster because, you know, they get a lot of, depending on your, you get a lot of government supports, so like two to three years. I think five to seven is, it's normal. I know that now, but think about it. Coming in as a young green filmmaker, I have telling me I need a two year timeline for finishing a film. And I'm like, I work full time and like I have 14 vacation days a year and I live in Miami. So I'm, I'm traveling back and forth. And that was super stressful. So that to me, those were the first red flags. It's like, why are people pressing me to condense into this two-year timeline that doesn't even make sense for, it's not what I'm going to do. I had a lot of people advising, just do that and take however long you need to take. Well, then at the two-year up mark, I have people calling, where is it? Or where, mm. where is this, where is this, where is this, where is this? And it was just like crippling to my creative everything. I'm generally not motivated by money. I'm sort of like the, the honest Southerner. Like I was raised in the Southern family, you know, like I'm that person who if there's $100 on the ground and somebody's standing near it, I will lose that $100 by saying, is this yours? And that person will say yes, whether it's theirs or not. <laughs> so that's who I am. This process for me, I just, it has been maybe like one of the best learning experiences, but I've never felt so oppressed Wow. in my life. It's, it's been one of like the most oppressive process. The thing that's really funny about it is I'm not a negative person. Mm -hmm. I try to be honest about the lessons that I've learned and the way the process has been for me, because it's, it's a similar thing that I do with my students. Like I talk very openly about my failures. I try not mm -hmm. to be like sort of complaining about it, but just like, these are the things that I struggle with. And these are the things that I learned in academia in creative things. Everyone's sort of scared to tell the truth. Yes. In academia, it's just all you want to do is talk about your accomplishments because everybody's trying to get tenure and everybody's trying to like level up. But my thing is, if you have all these students watching you and all you ever talk about are your wins, then when they lose, they feel like something's wrong with them. Underrepresented students, filmmakers, that like we already have imposter syndrome. So I'm not saying, no, I struggled with this. It took me a lot of time to figure out what I wanted to do. It took me years to be able to filter out the voices that I didn't want to. And then there's also like this process of like building trust. I think the thing about documentary filmmaking for me is that everything seems backwards. Nobody there in the beginning to tell you how to do your taxes or that you should figure it out. The one year that I had was super, super good. I am still suffering from that financially. I learned things by making mistakes. They were like, okay, here's all this money, but then no one um, gave you instructions about how you should do your taxes, like when, at what time you should take the money. Like I cried for a month and I, I cried for a month. Like I, I've been driving the same car for, my car is as old as my daughter. So like 17 years, I've been driving the same car. Mm -hmm. um, I had it in Philadelphia, I had it in Alabama, I have it here, it's falling apart. And I owed enough to buy a new car. 
if you'd be given some proper instruction, you wouldn't have to pay the government that money. So it's like for somebody like me, that is so much, right? And so I learned from that. Like I learned from that. Oh my God. Okay. I need to figure out like how these things work, whatever, whatever. But I just, to me, that was enough for me to be like, I can't do this in the way that people are pushing me to do it. Because if I had sort of slowed down and done things on the time that I wanted to do things, that mistake wouldn't have happened. Bad advice people pressing me and rushing me con consistently. Every time I pick up the phone, someone's like, where's this, where's this, where's this, where's this? Even after I owed up money in taxes, people are like, where's a sample? We need a new sample. We need a new sample. We need a new sample. And then you feel like a commodity, right? Like people are just looking for something to box and sell. And for me, that's the point where I'm just like, okay, boop, stop. I'm stopping. Not doing it this way again. Nope. I'm going to figure out a way to do it, to get it done because that's who I am. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it on my time. And it's going to be on your terms. And I mean, and that's another thing. I think that the documentary um, community fails to acknowledge that there's this assumption and structure that the people who create films are like moneyed and they have time and they, they live a particular lifestyle. And that is not the reality for most filmmakers, particularly a lot of women of color. They have their main gig to support their side gig of filmmaking. It's like a passion. Like, it's actually something that you feel called, I feel called and driven to do, like with this particular work. So it's not, my life would be so much easier if I didn't do this. You you are called and compelled. But the way that you're treated, like, or for me, I'll just say for me personally, and I mean, from talking to other people too, the way that you're treated is like, don't run off to Ibiza with this money. Ooh, you know, I'm doing this because I, I'm time with my kid, like I'm leaving my kid to go to all these different events and places to show my face and to try to get And the sort of thing that is put on me is we still don't trust you. That reminds me, you said Ibiza, that reminds me of that um, Dave Chappelle skit where he talks about the black folks getting reparations. Like we're buying like fur coats and gold chains and stuff and Cadillacs and... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm like, I drive a 2004 Toyota Corolla and it rains on the inside of my car. Like when it rains, it rains on the inside. <laughs> I'm not buying a Bentley. I think part of it for me is like in every aspect of my life as a like navigating the world as a black woman, I like I do a, whatever. I do all these things. I have all these accolades. I still have to prove myself in this way. Right. In every aspect. And so to be doing this thing that you love, that you're super passionate about, that you really, for me, it was like, the thing that really pushed me was not only like my family sort of history, I've always been a storyteller, but that storytelling has always been sort of deeply centered in Black communities, but Black Southern communities. Yes. I've always felt like there are always other people telling our stories. Amen. And not in a good way. No, not at all. They're not a, even if, you know, there are a lot of people who come live in the South for two years and then they're like, I can make Southern films, right? Or I can, or I'm a Southerner now or whatever. And it's, it's a, that's a different thing. It's not the same thing. So for me, part of that passion of doing it was like, I want to document my family life because I know a lot of families like my family who have this perspective and who sort of like, maybe it will inspire other Black women in the South to make movies or to look into Industries. I mean, I have that. I come from that type of family too, because I mean, I was raised in Augusta, in the city, but I have second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever cousins who still live on the land where we were enslaved and then sharecroppers. That's where we go for the family reunions, like Oconee County, Georgia, like right outside of Athens. 
So like that's very much rooted in, in my tradition. You walk in the land that your people walked and worked on. And that's, so that's the part of it that gives me joy. But I think because I'm fighting this battle on all fronts all the time, the filmmaking thing for me was like, I'm tired. I have another level of prove yourself. It shows why we should care. Like that's sort of like performative, you know, song thing. I'm going to lose it because I'm doing it in the corporate world. I'm doing it in academia. Like I'm doing it every, I'm doing it in writing. Cause even with writing, I have editors and sometimes I have to push back and be like, well, you know, why this? Why like, and, and again, my writing, like I do a lot of arts and film writing. Like I write for the Miami new times. Your film critic. But not critic though, but generally not critic. How would you describe yourself? I just say I'm an arts writer because I think critic has this thing. And then people classify me under that because I write about films. Try not to. I've, there's only one film that I've written a negative review about. What was it? Antebellum. It sounds like it's a bad version of Octavia Butler's Kindred. But it's different. But, but yes, but you're right. I mean, the things I wrote about it was just there's nothing new about it. And it's sort of like it came out during the time where we were already sort of like traumatized. It really is like a um, traditional slave story. Like there's a lot of glorification of violence against the black body. And it all pornographic to me. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just like, if you're going to tell a slave story, tell me something else. Tell me something new. Time, like at the time that it came out, it was just so, why would I want to watch extended scenes of black people being tortured right now? Because I could turn on the news and watch that. That one was negative, right? But for the most part, but even when I write negatively, like I'm not the hot takes person. Cause to me, it's just like, I know that people spend time creating things, right? And so go in to just like rip things apart. I like to go in and be like, how can we do this differently? Like what? Constructive criticism. Yes, yes. So all of my other writing is generally either I write about movies that I love that inspire me. Because here's the thing. This is not my full-time job. You do a lot. I do. So this is something I'm doing because for the love and the joy of it. Right. And also I love writing about short films. So to put forward papers when they're in that like sort of in-between stage and they're doing interesting creative things. And I like talking to them about their process. You know, to make a short film, you don't necessarily have to be a filmmaker. You know, it could just be something that you want to do or, or an interesting thread that you wanted to follow. And some of those people don't want to make movies. They just wanted to make this one. That's it, their passion piece and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I love it. I love the short form. Like I just, there's something about getting filmmakers at that point that's super interesting to me. And to, have the polish yet where you know when when i interview for bigger movies when i go back and read everybody else's reviews everybody got the same quotes because all the actors all the directors have their speaking points and that's what they stick to with emerging filmmakers you can get the the truth really and it's a conversation and they, they their their failures to them are still pretty fresh and their hopes and dreams are still pretty like new and like burgeoning. So I love writing, but with writing, everything has to go through other people. True, you got editors and- So in a sense, you're fighting that battle and fighting that battle at work. And then I think one thing we have in common, uh -huh. I know master's degrees, I'm working on my third. Girl, what are your three? Okay, can I remember them? <laughs> <laughs> I have a master of science in international relations because I, I want a foreign service officer forever. Like if I was, I, I still kind of do. I want that life. I've always wanted to be a diplomat. I actually took the foreign service exam and I made it to the interview process. Did you? I remember the interview process. They give you these like diplomatic scenarios. And then one of them where it was, I had to make the choice of 
like uh, going with a trade agreement with this fake country. Uh, but if they would only agree on the trade agreement, if we sit back, what are their artists who had like who had defected to the U.S.? But oh, wow. they would, if they were sent back, they would be tortured. Oh wow! So I'm like, you know, you know, f the trade agreement. You know, yeah. I'm like, I wasn't very diplomatic. I was going to negotiate. Yeah, yeah. But I, I took the exam. Actually, I had. I, I have to say that's that exam I actually enjoy taking because I'm such a nerd. Because it's like all about yeah. yeah it's, but anyway, okay, that's so cool. Okay, we got that. Yeah, in I'm a nerd too. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I always wanted people to call me Madam Ambassador. I'm like, what? <laughs> I would love to be like, what's your title? AMB. That's what you Madam call me. Bad, call me Madam. Yeah. <laughs> and that, so that Master's of Science in International Relations, I have an MFA in motion pictures. And this degree that I'm getting now is at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Master of Education in Arts and Education. So yeah, this program is awesome because it's it's for art practicing artists who teach. Nice. It's perfect. It's a, a two-year program. It's a one-year program, but I'm doing it part-time. Okay, so you're you're taking you're taking your time, like you need to take your time. Uh, yes, that's what I do. <laughs> that's great. Okay, so when you get your third master's, yeah, we could like toast three masters, and then at some point, I do want to go on to um get a PhD because I had a friend of mine who told me she has her PhD in I think in elder studies or something, but she said, yeah, at this point, if you don't get a PhD, you're just being lazy. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's true. I mean, I feel like when you're a nerd, you the, it's the dream. right? I love being in school. Yeah. You know, and I there's never been a time even in undergrad where I could be in school and not work. Like when I was an undergrad. So my my undergrad grades were trash. And I tell my students this all the time. I'm like, my undergrad. Trash. If you think you can't get anywhere because your GPA is fill in the blank. Let me tell you what mine was. <laughs> you know, and they appreciate yes. that. I'm just like, for me, I was so young, but. My, my, nobody wanted me to go away for school anyway. And mm-hmm. the school too was a rural, like there were 300 people in my whole high school, seven to 12. Wow. Only two people in my graduating class went out of state for school. And I was one of mm-hmm. them. And my parents, like my dad, I love my dad to death, but he's like the least sentimental person in the world. Like he just, he's an accountant and he's very much like, do something <laughs> practical. Like, why are you doing yes. this? Practical, super practical. He was basically like, if you don't go to the University of Alabama, we're not paying for you to go. Yeah. Because I had, like, I got full scholarships to a few schools in Alabama. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'd spent my childhood plotting on getting, I had a whole journal dedicated to living in Encino, California, because I knew that's that's where the Jacksons lived, you know, or Michael Jackson lived. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I had, you know, neighborhoods, like I, I had this whole scheme and plan of escape. And I knew that college was the only escape. So my parents didn't, they didn't want to pay for me to go to school, like. In Iowa. And they didn't even know the school, but then it was just like, why would you go somewhere else when you could go here for free? And they went to school for free. They also went to school during segregation. You know, it was very much like, go where you get in and where they give you money. That's what you did. So when I went to Grinnell, I had to work. Like I had a night job, like I worked at a gas station, the night shift, like I worked at restaurants, I was working in the dining hall. I had numerous jobs. Sometimes wasn't going to class to work because you had to. Yeah, wow. And I didn't tell anybody because I was so embarrassed. I was surrounded by people who didn't have to do anything. They all they had to do was study. Yeah. So I was super embarrassed, and my parents had already. My mom was supportive, right? But you know, like I already knew that the sentiment was you should just go where you can afford. So I just was sort of struggling financially alone. Mm. 
my grades were terrible because I was working. And that's been sort of like the story. So I love school, but I'm not the person who's been in school because I don't have to work. Like I always have to work. When I was in college, I had a little um, work study job. So it was, it was only like 10 hours a week, you know? So it wasn't like your experience, but for my master's, I got when I was grown. So I was, I was working full time when I was working on all my master's degrees, <laughs> which I think is really different. Cause I think when you're, um, put in a position where you do have to work, you feel like there's a greater responsibility. You know, there's a greater responsibility and sometimes like a greater burden like to, to follow through. Totally. The MFA that I got here at the University of Miami was, I, it took me six years to do it because it's a three-year program. Mm-hmm. With tuition remission, they only pay for you to do half-time at most. So it's interesting because being, you know, like MFA programs are interesting, right? Like they're always, I, I mean, what I love about it is that because I did it over six years, I got to be a part of so many different cohorts and work with so many. Yes. And, you know, like on the beginning end, it's like I'm learning from people who are like really good at their craft. And those people are still friends of mine. And then on the end end, I'm advising filmmakers who are coming in. And I think the thing that's crazy about film school is like you. So this is something that I'm trying to figure out, like how to counter, because I do talk to a lot of MFA students who are thinking about dropping out. They don't have money. And the way that, I mean, the way that programs are generally set up, and I feel like this happens everywhere, is the students who come into MFA programs who have money are the ones who get buy-in and investment from the professors and the faculty, because it's like, you already have a red package. You have a red, like there are people who own red camera packages. You already have this package. You're always already making, that's the person that professionals want to work with. Those are the students who sort of like get all the attention. Students who are legitimately coming in from uh, rural Alabama, <laughs> you know, let's mm-hmm. who don't have all that. They teach you the basics, and then it's like, now go make your movie somewhere, right? Um, and so yeah, the students who come in see that they're second class citizens. Everybody sees that, you know. They do that at USC and UCLA, and like I have people ask me, well, where should I? Yeah, you know, they're thinking about film school. Where should I go? And I always mention no just to UCLA or USC, my my alma mater. But um, I always mention Chapman University, which is in Orange County, and the reason why is because their alumni get to have access to their equipment. You know, they make it available for people to come in and use like the editing rooms. You know, if, if a student isn't using the camera, they can rent it. Cause I mean, I don't, that was a few years ago. I hope they still do that. But here's the thing. Like if you don't have come in with the resources, when you graduate, you don't have any equipment to do anything. Yeah. You know, cause equi- like good equipment is, is expensive. Super, to rent, to buy. It's, I think that's one of the things again, all the institutions have great language, but at the end of the day, it's like you have these sort of like underrepresented students coming in who really want to tell these compelling stories about their communities and these things. And they're sort of being put in the second class citizen section, like right. make mm-hmm. it work, find your money, find your look, do whatever. We're going to work with the people who are already rolling. And I feel like that's a huge problem in, in the industry in general. And something I'm thinking about a lot is, well, how do we how do we get those kids on equal footing? I didn't feel like I didn't, I, I felt the people who supported me were super supportive. And I feel like people tend to support me a lot because I work really hard. Like I just, I work, I do everything like it's work. So if I'm in an MFA program and I'm shooting, like I was PAing on student films in the beginning. Like, so these kids are closer to my age. I'm PAing, going to get coffee, whatever. 
if I'm a PA, I'm a PA. Like, I have to know about it. I have to do my job. I'm going to do it well. And I'm t- I, my thing is, I love I loved working on those sets so much because I love taking the pressure off the director and the producer. I'm like, I, I need to do so that you can do your job. I love sort of like all elements of being on set. But at that time, I was working full time, part time in this program for like six years. And then every single weekend and, and, and some nights during the week, I would be on sets like three days for shorts, three days. You know, my daughter was sleeping on sandbags on set, like, just <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. on set with me. Like I, I wasn't going to pay for, you know, a sitter. She was on set with me and everybody jokingly called her the youngest student in the MFA program because she was at everything. Yeah. You know? Give her a degree. <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of like how it had to be and how it had to roll. That's a lot to carry. So how would you revamp that? I don't know. It's to the point now where, so I was doing, I, I was reading this interview in Filmmaker Magazine the other day, and I can't remember the director's name, but she did that movie Test Pattern coming out now here in Miami. Um, but there was a lot of talk about it, and she's a Black female director. And she said something in the article about, so she's basically saying she used nine credit cards to make her movie filmmaker and that whole thing about going into debt for your movie and she said something about the industry the way that the industry sort of thinks about it is that people have done it this way so therefore you should be able to do it this way and I felt this way about my documentary too so many people are asking me why I'm not doing things quicker or why like when you know and my thing is because this is the way that people have always done it doesn't mean that that's right or healthy boom okay so I know that, and I, I actually, I lost, I think I lost a job because I answered this question with a little bit of pepper on it <laughs> because someone was asking me like, well, when are you going to finish your movie, you know, in this, in this interview? And I kind of just flipped. I mean, not, I'm never unprofessional, <laughs> it's like a, it's a, but I know that I'm a black woman. So any tone is perceived as a flip. It doesn't matter how professional I am, how I put it, if I'm not saying what you want me to say in the soothing tones that make you feel comfortable. Come on. I have you, right? Someone asked me this question and I was just like, you know, I have been torturing myself over this feeling like I'm inept and inadequate. And I'm like, I look at my life, there's no way I'm inept and inadequate. No, like at not at all. Not, right? But I said, but I realized on the plane here that people are using this measuring stick for me, right? And it's a measuring stick that is white, privileged male with no kids, right? Can make this movie in six months. Mm-hmm. That's not who I am. That's right. That's not your life. You can't hold me to that measuring stick. Like I, it's going to take me a lot longer because I don't, I don't have the money. Like I have to, work to get the money. Um, and then every time I get money, that money creates more work for me because I have to manage the money, report back, do all of the sort of like happy, happy, shiny, shiny, like, you know, no tone. Mm-hmm. even though all types of way about it. So it's like, there's all this performance that has to go along with these pieces. And that's energy that actually takes away from what I should that's be right. doing. That's right. That's the unpaid labor of all yeah. of this. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't, it's weird. Like, I think I've grown so much, but then I am really at the point where I'm just so tired. And part of it for me is like, I don't know how it, the whole system can change. I don't even know that the whole system can change, you know? Over the span of my lifetime, I feel like we've been having this conversation forever. It's just like diversity conversations. Yes. Police brutality conversations. And I think one of the things that COVID has taught me is 
if people really wanted to make the shifts, they could make the shifts. Boom. Thank you. Okay. So here's an example. And I've, I've been sort of been mulling over this forever. I've been like, why can't Americans be more flexible about how we work? Okay. As a single parent. Yes. Like we must work. Flexibility. I know. And like, we must work nine to five. We must all like get in our cars and be on the highways at the same same time. time. For no reason. Yeah. I've always thought that that is just ridiculous, especially living in LA with all this traffic. Miami traffic is brutal too. But look at us now. Yeah. We can be flexible when we want to be. When it benefits them. And so that's the thing. Like, so the thing that sort of like burned me up and I think about I'm just like all these years, like, okay, so I sort of calculated from my daughter being three to maybe like 15, she had to do, I had to do after school care. And we don't have kids after school care is usually that window between when school gets out and when you can get out of work. So it's about 3.30 to 5.30 during the week, during school days. Um, and I had to do that every month. That cost me about $420 a month every month from the wow. time my daughter was three to the time that she was 15. I calculated that up to see how much it was. And that's for mm-hmm. hours, right? A day. Yes. yes. Over that span of time, $66,800. I think about that and I'm like, if I could have saved that money and invested it, I could have over $100,000 to go to my child's education, right? And so when, pe- when people are like, oh, you're very angry about this. I'm like, that is that is how wealth is stolen from you. It is thievery. It is. It absolutely yeah. is. Why can why couldn't I have been working from home those two extra hours a day? Mm-hmm. I'm working from home all hours now. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it like no. It, it's yeah. like, oh God, don't ask for that. Cause then everybody's gonna ask for it. But what what is it? Like I'm not a doctor. But here's the thing, like um one of my um my favorite films of all time is the film Nine to Five. Yeah, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda. And I saw that movie when I was nine years old. And when you watch that today, you're dealing with some of the same workplace issues. Like they talk about, they one of the, the things they institute when they have like Mr. Hart in prison, you know, in this little S&M like, like garage door thing <laughs> is uh, like flexible time. Because like at the beginning of the film, a woman is fired because like she can't fit into that nine to five schedule and she needs to be home early with her kids. So they institute a face of festival time. They got rid of the time clock. They have a daycare in the facility. I mean, like, all these things to make it more workplace friendly and like, it increases productivity. But we're still like dealing, trying to get all these things, dealing with these same issues. When that movie came out when I was 10, I'm going to be 50 in May, Lord. But um. Yeah, I know. I'm like, what? How did that happen? You know, <laughs> like, but like, I remember like that movie just made such an impact on me, and I said, yeah, I'll never work in a place like that. But you know, that didn't quite work out. It could be different. It could have been different all along. And 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 when you talk about the costs, like, I mean, the cost to maintain a car, the cost to like for car insurance and gas. I mean, I've actually been able to save a lot of money during this time because I've been on lockdown because like I don't have some of these added expenses. Yeah, me too. So much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And yeah. my daughter's doing uh, school from home. Like, so it's the amount of money I've been able to save is ridiculous. And with the sort of like pause on student loan interest. Also, I think a lot of people are kind of done or at least tired of the, the lip service, you know, 
um, when it comes to, you know, things, well, like everything, you know, like, but they, like what you said, then they're using the proper language, but they're not actually um, doing the actions to reinforce that language. I don't know if what happens is you get to a certain age and you're just sort of like done with it and you realize that it's not going to change in the span of your lifetime. But I used to be like super optimistic and super, like I was like the diversity person. Um, and even in high school, you know, like, you know, in high, like I went to high school in rural Alabama and, and this was in the 90s. So it was like before, you know, people would always assume, well, there are no, like there are no gay people in this room. So I can say this homophobic thing. And at the time, we, the word homophobic wasn't even a thing, right? Like, right. So um, I was always the one who was just like, no, 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 no. You know, like I'm always, I was always that person. Like people can shift. We just have to have conversations about it. We just have to, whatever, you know, argue to my racist friends, like about just how things work and why they are. And, you know, like sort of building the bridge, which goes back to the whole diplomacy thing. Right. Right. But I think, and it's, and my dad was always very much like, look, Okay, this is what's going to happen. And you will see, right? He was always like, you will see. And now I'm at the age where I'm just like, you know, I don't, the whole system's been designed this way, like in service of white supremacy, everything, Mm -hmm. everything. So if we can't acknowledge that and sort of like root that out, we just keep talking around it, talking about it. Yeah. Mm hmm. Um, Black History Month. I every I'm so glad Black History Month's about to be over because you know everybody and everyone is like texting and emailing about things that they want, stories that they want to run and do, and then I hear nothing for the rest of the year. So yeah, exactly. Like we, yeah, we disappear. Like we're moving on to the next month, you know, because we got to focus on the women because you know Women's History Month is coming up, and um, you know June is Pride, so you know that's when we talk about LGBT folks, but like not before or after that. <laughs> I mean, what a way to make you feel like a token. Like, yeah, Mm -hmm. days, 28 days, your clock is ticking and then you're not, you know. I want to talk about kind of go back to what you were talking about in regards to like how you are with your student. You know, you discuss with them the importance of um, the the successes, but also what you learn from the failures. I found that there is such a reluctance in the documentary community to have those conversations. I kind of come from the frame of mind. It's like, yes, I want to examine what I did well, because like sometimes it's, it is important to know what you did well to replicate it, but also you need to talk about like what didn't, so you don't replicate that. And there seems like such a fear around that. For me, one of the reasons why I'm able to speak so bluntly about it is that I'm, you know, like a lot of people in my cohort, like for like Firelight or whatever, they are in the industry. It's like they might be making their own documentaries. Yes. But they also shoot for other people and like they're working all the time. Like this is their work for me because I have work and this is like something a part of a part of me and something that I do. And it's something that I'm not sure about at this stage. I want to do after this movie then it's easier for me to be honest. But I feel like the documentary world in general is so sort of like incestuous. That's true. And so, and as soon as you sort of like speak up, especially if you're a woman of color, as soon as you say something that rubs somebody the wrong way, you're difficult. Once you're branded as that, it's like no one really wants to to do anything with you. So I think harder for them because they have to work with everyone all the time. But to me, I'm just like, there've been so many things like to me there just been so many things it was like if we could have these honest conversations about what yes how to shift and one of the biggest things for me is just with 
you know, there are a lot of funders and funding organizations that I think are doing the best they can. I really do. But I think one of the things is like, stop using this one fit, like one size fits all measuring stick for everybody. Like you can't be using all this diversity language and like looking for filmmakers in the South and looking for indigenous filmmakers and looking for people. I think the contradiction is they're looking for the next new thing that hasn't, that isn't a thing yet, but then expecting them to come in and like work in the way that an experienced person would work, right? Like, or someone with the connection. Yeah. Or the same time, like it's the same privileges. And so my thing is, I just really would like for organizations to look more at what their filmmakers need. Some filmmakers need time, space, and quiet. And if you don't give them that, you know, then you are affecting the outcome. So I, like for me, it's easier to talk about because I just, this is who I am. Like when, when, when I'm at things with funders, I'm on calls with funders and they're like, how are you doing? If I'm drowning, I'll say I'm drowning, right? Like you're, you're, you're real. You don't say, oh, I'm, I'm great. I'm okay. No, because it doesn't serve me. It's like, if I'm not being honest with you, it doesn't, one, it's not who I am, but it doesn't. So it's like, if I'm struggling, I need you to know I'm struggling because that sort of like colors everything, right? I'm great. And I had a breakthrough. I'm going to let you know that, but I'm not that person who's going to put on the facade for the money. In documentary filmmaking, it's like people have to put on that facade and everything's good all the time because they want to assure people that they're a good investment. I don't want people investing in me who don't know that I am a layered, complicated person. Yeah. And you're a real person. A real person. Yeah. This is assumption that that you're not going to bring your lived um, experience, like how you live your life into the work. And like everybody, everybody does that. So, yeah, I don't know. With my students, it's, you know, it's really weird because I love teaching so much. It's like I classroom some days going in. It's like preparing for a performance where it's like you just really aren't in the mood. I think like I was teaching in person during the fall. So it's Miami, COVID, like height, peak. So I had a lot of really stressful. It was a lot. But I, it may have been one of the best experiences I think I've ever had because I was teaching this course that I designed called Radical Black Cinema. We don't have any cinema courses in our, or any Black film courses in our cinema. And I just always wanted one. So I designed it and was just like, we're just going to show up at the theater. Like there's one of us watch Black movies, talk about them. Um, we watch a lot of short films. They watch a lot of stuff on their own to just have conversations around like black filmmaking and like what what is radical in black filmmaking and um, is this radical? Is it not? And why is it, you know? And it was just such an amazing experience. And I some days would come in and could just feel the energy and like you sort of like have to play off. of Right. If the energy is super low, you have to have super big energy to bring everyone up. But I just love having these conversations about filmmaking. I like teaching film. I like talking about short films and like, and then encouraging them to bring in things that inspire them or that and why, you know, why do these things offend you and talking about the history of film. One thing I want you to talk about too is I remember when you were, you're about to start, I think you were about to start teaching a class and you posted about it on Facebook. And a lot of people, including myself, like, oh, that was cool. Like, we asked you for your syllabus. And you said no. 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 That and, is correct. And no. I was so proud that you said no. So, like, tell us why you said no. Oh, my gosh. Because I am a Black woman who is, people are always showing up to pick my brain. They always want my ideas. They always want my brain. But they don't pay me. 
so to me, a syllabus is intellectual property. It is like I it were I worked so hard to like sort of like curate what I'm showing. And it's like a to me, the way I explain it to people is it's like asking a DJ for their playlist. Like, give me your whole set. Right. Take that whole set and then you can go DJ and claim that that's your own set. Right. And so for me, one of the things that I've noticed in academia is like I'm not tenure track. I'm not like I'm a lecturer. Right. Right. So I get paid probably less than a graduate student gets paid to teach a class. Lord, that's a whole other thing they need to fix. Yeah, you know, I, so I do it for the love. It's not for the money. It's because I, I'm like, I see a black cinema class and I want black students to have a black cinema class. Um, every semester, I'm like, should I do this again? Because it really is not paying, it's not paying me a decent wage at all. And that's everywhere, right? Like the, the adjunct lecturer everywhere. Um, when I tell people what I make for that, they are appalled. Yeah, so the syllabi thing, it's like, I worked all summer curating this list of movies. And what I find happens, it's the same thing that happens with diversity things everywhere. People want to see what you've done so they can pick over it, use some of the films for their classes, teach some of the things in their things to say that they're on the they're on top of the diversity stuff, but they don't want to pay you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I find most of the people who ask me to see my syllabi are usually men. Um, who who also teach, but don't offer me anything. So I'm like, how does it serve me to give you this thing that I've sort of like labored over to build? And so, and so with people that I, you know, that I know and all that kind of stuff, the reason that I flag it is because I can't control where it goes after I, after I give it to you. Exactly, exactly. And I've had people pick things off of things that I've shared before and have it show up in their syllabus, right? So it's like, I'm doing the work for you. I'm doing the work for my students and for me. And my syllabus is for my students. And, I, and if you want my syllabus, you need to take my class. Or if you want me to help consult on your, making your syllabus more diverse, pay me to consult. Like you don't get to sort of just take what I've built and use it however you want to use it. I just, I'm done with that. April challenges us and the documentary industry as a whole to reevaluate the traditional way of filmmaking that is built to support cis, white, able-bodied men who do not engage in parenting or caretaking. Filmmakers represent a diversity of lived experience. Documentary filmmakers have lives. Unfortunately, the industry centers the experience of a singular view, and those who don't fit into that mold are forced to adapt in ways that are not nurturing for themselves or their creative goals. It is disingenuous to do the talk of diversity without actually doing the walk of diversity. One size does not fit all. In the meantime, if you are a filmmaker or a member of the industry who is part of what I like to call the global majority, find your support from roundgirls.mafia, the Queer Producers Network, Ford Doc, ADOC, Nia Taro, and organizations such as Detroit Narrative Agency, Milwaukee Film, and the New Orleans Film Society. There are so many groups that are centering support for the specific and unique needs of the communities that they serve. And there is a collective power in choosing to be in spaces where we are all seen for who we are and embraced and supported. Thank you so much for listening today. In our next episode, we will be speaking with Bad West officers Joyce Lee, Joyce Skye, and Melissa Strong as they tell us about the upcoming Day of Black Docs. 
Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupwdocs and make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music is by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Chumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast.